Good morning. Over the past two and a half years, my job has been increasingly focused on work and immigration. One of the gaps we filled is finding long-term housing and support for individuals leaving detention who would otherwise be immediately homeless. Alan, and I've changed all the names and distinguishing uh, details about this story, ran a successful crop harvesting business, had two young boys, and completed a two-year Bible course in his country of origin before he was abducted by a rebel group. After months in captivity, he was rescued by the military. But both groups tortured him regularly, beating and cutting him with knives. He fled, leaving behind his children with his 94 and 95-year-old parents, and arrived at a port of entry at the U.S. border in 2019. He was immediately detained by ICE and spent months in detention. Alan had some acquaintances in Georgia, but because he was unfamiliar with U.S. geography and didn't have access to his phone, he didn't know exactly where in the state they lived. His attorney, John, contacted me and asked me if we could find a way to find a long-term sponsor for Alan somewhere in the state. With the help of Isaac Viejas, pastor of Chapel Hill Mennonite Church, we found a Baptist congregation that decided in less than a week to provide Alan with housing and the support he would need over many years to begin a, new, a brand new life. John, Alan's attorney, isn't a person of faith, but he has given his life to care for those on the margins, first representing domestic violence victims, and then more recently working on some of the most challenging immigration cases I encounter. When Alan was released, John told me that he was so moved by Alan's courage and perseverance despite all he had gone through that he hung up Alan's picture in his office to remind him why he practices immigration law. Alan left for a bus on a bus for Georgia in January 2020, and things, of course, suddenly changed for all of us a couple of months later. But the Baptist Church in Georgia didn't falter. They helped Alan find a job where he worked tirelessly and quickly became a supervisor. They taught him how to ride a moped and he got his driver's license. They found a local grocery store that carried food that he loved. In a recent email, the committee chair summarized the last year to me. So overall, it's gone well. We like Alan. He has wanted his independence and we have tried not to stand in his way, including allowing him to make his own decisions about how much he works and sleeps. Although we don't agree with a lot of his decisions, they are his to make and not ours. The only real issue we have had with him is over religious beliefs. We are an open and affirming community and we have LGBTQ staff in our churches. Alan believes the Bible condemns LGBTQ people and was telling us that. He is also very patriarchal and believes the wife should be subservient to the husband. That belief has not gone over well either. We had to have a meeting with him to discuss what was going on and ask him to stop this behavior. I thought a lot about this email the last few months. Since COVID began, Parish Resource Center, where I work, has worked with almost 400 congregations across 13 denominations throughout the Mid-Atlantic region as these churches have struggled to remain accessible and relevant to their congregants despite a global pandemic. Not only have these churches struggled to remain connected to members, 
but when they've connected, once relatively cohesive congregations have struggled to find points of commonality. If the Acts passage we heard this morning spoke of a time when all who believed were together and had all things in common, the church over the last 17 months has often felt like a bunch of people with wildly different understandings who can't agree on anything. At the height of the pandemic, one pastor of a downtown mainline fairly progressive church told me that he received a steady stream of angry emails almost every time he preached. And no matter how carefully he phrased something, someone from each side of the issue got upset. The same pastor thanked me for asking the church to host a COVID vaccine clinic because it was the only way he could mention vaccines from the pulpit without too much outrage from certain members of his congregation. Eight years ago, when I started working at PRC, I quickly became aware of the drip, drip, drip of decline that many churches were either facing or deeply concerned about, as most experienced a drop in regular attendance as well as aging congregations. Many of the seminaries I work with are struggling to reimagine their futures as well as their curriculum, certain that what they had taught for years wasn't quite working anymore but unsure about how to address what seems like an ever-changing future for the church. COVID certainly exacerbated the situation. What once felt like a drip of decline suddenly became a gush. Churches without out online giving saw their offerings dry up. Pastors with elderly congregations struggled to provide care for their frightened congregants through unfamiliar technology. And property committees tried to maintain buildings that were sitting empty indefinitely. As churches began to return to some level of normalcy in April, pastors and lay leaders were more uncertain about the church than I've ever seen them before, even during those first scary months of COVID. Many had reason for concern. According to Gallup, Americans' membership in faith communities, and by faith communities, they mean churches, synagogues, and mosques, has for the first time since the poll began in 1937, dropped below 50% to 47%. That's down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. And it's not just mainline Protestant churches that are seeing a dramatic shift. PPRI's 2020 census of American religion found a drop from 23% to 14.5 of Americans who identify as white evangelicals. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. Kent Crailer, the retired pastor at First United Methodist Church in Lancaster, put it another way. The church is the away team now, he told me when I asked him how the church had changed since he began his ministry. For any sports fan, the analogy is familiar. The away team is the sports team that is traveling to a game and therefore is without a home field advantage. The away team is a bit disoriented in an unfamiliar locker room, sometimes in a different time zone and without the home crowd. A little flock of God is how Anabaptists in the 16th century referred to themselves in their first confession of faith. Regardless of the analogy, the idea is the same. The once mighty American Christian church is in an uncertain space and a vulnerable time. I am about to do new things. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 
I am someone who loves to learn and try new things. I suffer from what is often called by family and friends, bright shiny object syndrome. It takes very little for me to be distracted from the routine of life by something really almost anything new. I always have a new project or a new idea or a new plan for something. But occasionally doing something outside of the norm can really throw me. Preaching this sermon, for instance, is one of those things. It's sort of worn on me for weeks. I've dreamed about it. I've worried about it. It's distracted me from other work this week. I joke that if I made it successfully up and down the platform, I would consider today a success. So <laughs> thank you. So far, so good. We have another trip down. Why has this bothered me so much? Well, I care about all of you and your opinion. I care about how you think I'm doing right now. Of what I hope that you think that what I say matters a little bit. And I'm also standing behind the pulpit, a place where important things about God and the universe and maybe our salvation are often said. What if I make a mistake or say something wrong that sounds dumb or silly? It's a lot of pressure. In my experience, change in church can have a similar effect on those in leadership. There's a weight to each decision that can seem outsized because of all that we perceive to have at stake. But I'm struck by how in the early passage from Acts, the work of the church is explained day by day as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. It sounds so easy. I read this passage, and then I think about the story I started with this morning. How can good people, people who have trusted God in deeply uncertain times, find it so hard to agree on the most fundamental things to the point where they're hurting each other? What did the early church know that we've lost? In my work, I often have people, many times older people, say to me that they pray that their church will grow and that younger families and children will return. It's a prayer that makes a lot of sense to me. But I've found it's also important to be pre prepared for what happens when your prayers are answered. We prayed for children and families, Miriam Charles, one of the matriarchs of Habakkuk Mennonite Church. And as many of you may know, uh, she was going to be memorialized this afternoon, once said, and God laughed and said, how many can you take? For those of you who aren't familiar with the story of Habeckers, it was a decade or so ago when it was just a small church with mostly Swiss German congregants, the descendants of young immigrant families who first started the churches in the 1700s. In 2008, the congregation served as a welcome and support team through a refugee resettlement program for a young Karen family from Burma who had spent years in a Thai refugee camp. Habakkuk's extension of hospitality drew more Karen to their family, to their congregation, and quickly the makeup and feel of the church has changed. Today, the one small congregation is three-fourths native Karen speaker and one-fourth English speakers with the Sunday services conducted in both Karen and English. Are we prepared to feel like the away team in our own congregation if it means growth and health? 
Are we willing to put ourselves in vulnerable and uncomfortable positions because we believe it will make a true difference in the life of the church? Many of you may know Carl McKinney, who is the lead pastor at Arisman Mennonite Church in Mannheim. Prior to moving to Lancaster to take a pastorate at Arisman, Carl served a Mennonite church in Northern Virginia as a lead pastor and served at the same time as director of operations for a large nonprofit in Baltimore focused on housing. Navigating rural Mannheim after his previous experiences would have been a big enough challenge, but Carl is also a black man pastoring an almost entirely white congregation of ethnic Mennonites whose families have likely worshiped together for generations. I asked Carl how he navigated what seemed to me to be a daunting undertaking. When I started, he said, I asked for a cultural interpreter, someone from the congregation I could ask how to navigate often unspoken understandings or norms. That person could also help negotiate misunderstandings or misperceptions. Did it work, I asked? Sometimes, Carl said. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Maybe sometimes is the best we can expect. While these are examples of big answers to prayer or major changes congregations and leaders have taken, I often encounter pastors who have worked at this in perhaps smaller but deeply altering ways. Steve Raquel is the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church, which is at the corner of Queen and James Street here in the city. For 15 months or so, Steve, Rhoda Shark, and I have served a community meal every Sunday evening in the Grace parking lot. As far as I can tell, Steve knows just about everyone. One night after he had greeted all the community meal guests by name and waved at several doctors cutting through the church parking lot to the nearby hospital, I asked him how he had gotten to know this disparate group of people. Oh, I sweep the parking lot every day, he said. That's it, I asked. Well, there are often a lot of cigarette butts, he said. But as I got to know Steve, I realized this simple act often made all the difference. Recently, the church renovated its space so that it could make room for a Head Start program providing neighborhood children with early education. As part of the renovation, the church added pervious payment, pavement and rain gardens because Steve had observed how runoff had run through the church parking lot every week. Sweeping each day has made Steve more approachable to the neighbors who use the parking lot as a shortcut to the hospital or other offices on Duke Street. Tenants of the church's more than a dozen affordable housing apartments, all scattered around the neighborhood, know that they can often find Steve somewhere outside of the church building if they have a question or need some help. And what I've also learned is that Steve is always quick to point out how someone else has helped him during an encounter in the parking lot. Ted, Ted Steve said, when introducing me to one of the community meal guests, help me fix the carburetor on my snowplow last week when it suddenly stopped working in the middle of clearing the lot after a snowstorm. It is a spirit similar to what drew me to East Chestnut Street with our very active community meal, our support of refugee families coming into our community and our focus on providing affordable housing in our community. I don't know what the future of the church looks like 
I hope that it's a little simpler, less grand, more like the early church as outlined in the passage from Acts with shared meals and more goodwill for each other. And as the early church later found, true growth and the building of our relationships will be uncomfortable and sometimes painful and certainly uncertain. But as Ephesians tells us, God, by the power at work within us, is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine.